Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. So what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus. And so let's explore Jesus together. Cunning. In a piece of advice that could have been lifted from a CIA training manual or the whispered meetings of a revolutionary cell, Jesus tells his little platoon, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Matthew 10, 16. We like the innocent as doves part. That sounds very nice, very Sunday school. But that first bit, hold on now. Shrewd as snakes? When you hear someone say, he's such a snake, do you think, oh, what a fine Christian? (laughs) The things Jesus says. Let's get the religious drapery off this. A dove and a snake. Now, surely they remember the dove descending on Jesus. As for the snake metaphor, these Jews would have connected that instantly to the serpent in the garden. Be as holy as the Spirit— and be as cunning as Satan. You want us to do what? Jesus is saying, look, this is a very dangerous world. The disciples glance at one another thinking, right, we've got the Son of God on our side. I mean it, he continues. Take this seriously. I'm sending you into the Congo with a butter knife. You are easy pickings. You must be holy, and you must be cunning. They've been watching Jesus for several years now. His way of maneuvering must have given this command a sober weightiness. Let's go back and pick up our earlier clarity, probably lost by now, regarding the context of Jesus' life. Those murdered little boys, their parents wailing, the angel in the night, Jesus bundled tight beneath a cloak as his parents fled the country. Jesus is a hunted man. Many times over these past three years, he has ducked out of town because the thugs were waiting to take him. He is no fool. He knows full well he is operating behind enemy lines. Oh, he intends a revolution, but he knows timing is essential. He must outwit his enemy, circumvent the religious authorities without seeming to do so, and train his followers to carry on after his departure— despite the fact that they appear to have the common sense of a three-year-old. Now, watch him navigate. Shortly after the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus is performing miracles, casting out demons. He has drawn to himself the outcast. The crowds begin to swell with the downtrodden. The air is electric with the thrill of something new, something smacking of revolt. The mob will soon try and seize Jesus and make him king by force. He ducks out of that scene as well and relocates. So, he offers this. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. From Matthew chapter 5. Over the course of the next few years, Jesus' movement will disrupt the Jewish system very, very profoundly. He is going to turn things upside down and inside out. The world will never be the same, literally. But there is a precision to his every move. Without his teaching on genuine holiness, the crowd could shift to anarchy. Mob psychology is stable as plutonium. One crowd tried to throw him off a cliff already. Another will try a coup. Don't forget, this is the age of the Colosseums. And he's got to keep the religious authorities off balance as well. I've not come to abolish the law, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's got the mob suddenly thinking about their morals and the religious police stumped as to his intentions. Brilliant. Now, the conflict is going to escalate, but still, Jesus will not be suckered in prematurely. He continues to maneuver. And then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us, then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. From Matthew 22. He will not be baited into their traps. He will not be sidelined as a member of this group or that position. Guilt by association is an easy trump card in public life. If you can label your opponent as right-wing or liberal, fundamentalist or charismatic, you don't even have to argue your case. Your fellow partisans will dismiss the culprit with righteous indignation. Branding someone prevents them from ever being able to prove they are innocent, state their case. It's a cheap and effective ploy that's been around a long time, a particular favorite of the religious, tar and featherum. Jesus won't be tricked into it. He circumvents the Roman loyalists and anyone looking for a reason to report him to Caesar by saying, give him what is his. He keeps himself firmly established as a good Jew by adding, and give God what is his. Brilliant. Have you taken notice of how smart Jesus is? 
as cunning as a snake. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. From Matthew 21. The clerical stooges dare to question his authority. He turns the trial on them so completely, they find themselves backed into the corner they had hoped to box him into. Now they don't know what to say or do. Jesus says, If you won't answer me, I don't have to answer you. And then he just walks away. Brilliant. But the best use Jesus makes of his cunning brilliance is with the hearts he is trying to win over. This is a far more difficult task. Let's return to the story of the woman at the well. We left it too soon. There is so much more there worth relishing. Remember now, single Jewish man, single Samaritan woman. She is sexually indiscreet. They are alone. He strikes up a conversation. She knows it's scandalous. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. She adds woman to make the point. How is it that you ask me for a drink? Exactly. What's a girl supposed to read into this? She's a tough cookie, this one. A more submissive first century Palestinian woman with no legal rights would have just drawn the water and not said a word, whatever she might have been thinking. But this one? She puts up a fight. I already like her. Jesus replies, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. From John chapter 4. A return that almost implies, Hold your horses there, cowgirl. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Her rebuttal is feisty. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? You can almost see her, one hand on a hip, jug in the other, head cocked in that sassy way. Where are you going to get water? You got no rope. And you can sense the insinuated, you got no rope, rabbi. Then she tosses in a bit of the racial tension. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons, his flocks, and his herds? Samaritans were hated because they were half-breeds. Dragging Jacob into this is a defiant, do you think you're better than me? A comment that would have incensed your average Pharisee. She's picking a fight. The repartee here is worth the entire account. But wait, there's more. Jesus doesn't take the bait. His next comment is pure intrigue. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, 
Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus is setting a trap. She throws one verbal jab after another like a waitress in a rough cantina. He has all the deftness of a bullfighter. She's snarky, then defensive. He's gracious and engaging. And then something in her attitude seems to shift. Notice the piece of critical information she chooses to hide. I'm not married. Technically, that's true. Anything else? She is living with a man. Why doesn't she admit that? I'm not seeing anyone right now. Is she coming on to Jesus a little bit? This winsome man who has continued to pursue her alone outside of town? Something provokes him to say, go get your husband. Now he has her right where he wants her, and he pulls the chair right out from under her. You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Snap. He's got her. To appreciate his style, consider it would have been a lot easier for Jesus to go about the whole conversation in a more direct manner. Hello, I'm the Messiah. What's your name? Hello, I notice you're here at midday. Is that because you're on your sixth relationship? As he so often does, Jesus takes the indirect approach. Playful and cunning. Very cunning. I would love to know how long that pause was. See the look on her face after he reads her the secrets of her diaries. Does she drop her bucket? And notice, he doesn't throw the seventh commandment at her. He simply tells her that he knows what she's hiding. Most embarrassing. She actually tries one more racial religious card, maybe to deflect the attention off her. Jesus holds his ground. He must be smiling at her now, because she doesn't fight back after that. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is the humblest thing she has said yet. Essentially, she's asking, are you who I think you are? Jesus simply says, yep. What a wonderful way of capturing this woman. The story ends with her running to tell the whole village. And in generous Jesus fashion, he stays two days with them, a Jewish rabbi hanging out with the Samaritans. To get the full texture and zest of his cunning in these stories, weave together his playfulness with his honesty, his generosity with his fierce intention, add a dash of his startling freedom. I love this man. Now, watch him with the rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? From Mark chapter 10. Jesus is starting out of town. In order to fall on his knees before him, this fellow would have had to have blocked his way. One last interruption throws himself in front of Jesus with just a little drama. Jesus acts as though this is just one more religious type, feigning flattery, but entrenched in their holier-than-thou self-assessment. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Do not give false testimony and do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Don't flatter me. You know the commands. Keep them. He tosses him a standard Jewish answer, a reply that seems like an end to the conversation because he apparently turns to walk away. The sincerity of the man then becomes apparent. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Teacher, in order to stop Jesus, and then, I have done all this. It's almost as if Jesus then turns, gives him a deeper look in the eyes, and sees that this young man means what he says. He sees something else, something that changes his mood entirely. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This next move is the most difficult to do well. Jesus reaches for a corner of the rug the man is standing on, or kneeling, if you're a literalist. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Oh, one more thing. The young man has an idol he is clutching in his heart. It must have been his secret love, we know from his reaction. Jesus knew by looking into his heart. In typical religious spirit posturing, the church in ages past seized this passage and made poverty a requisite for following Christ. But that misses the point entirely. Jesus had wealthy men and women among his disciples, such as Joseph of Arimathea and the women who supported his ministry. God warned the Jews many times against idolatry, that if anyone set up an idol in their heart, God would set himself against them. But oh, how hard it is to topple a cherished idol. Can you imagine how devastating this was? The young leader actually thought he had lived a thoroughly righteous life. In one comment, said almost like an afterthought, Jesus exposes him as no better than the brute heathen bowing before a wooden carving in a smoky tent, muttering prayers. Here is Jesus at his very best. He yanks this man off balance, sets his entire world reeling, and in the same moment extends his hand to catch him. Let this go. Then come, join me. I want you to join me. What an invitation. But the thought of giving his precious treasure away, his life source, his security and status, it is too much for the earnest young man. He walks away, head cast down in sorrow, exposed but also captive to his false god. Again, wealth is not the point. The idol is the point. It might be anything. The attention of men, as with the woman at the well or self-righteousness, as with the religious. It might be position, power, family, even church. We craft idols faster than you can surf the Internet. But isn't this a story of Jesus' cunning? Does it end with the man walking away? Watch closely. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Picture him watching the young ruler, now at a distance, as he says these last words. Jesus knows the sincerity of this man. There was something about him that made Jesus love him. He knows he has pulled the one thread that will unravel the whole fabric of his life. I think Jesus knows it worked. Yes, they all see the man fading from view, and the disciples are pessimistic. Jesus nods, with man, this is impossible, but he sees what they do not, sees the internal revolution already taking place, but not with God. All things are possible with God. With a smile and a wink, it's as if he says, he'll be back, and then he turns and walks out of town. Wow, is Jesus good. You will appreciate the mastery of Jesus only to the degree that you understand the minefield he walks. He is advancing against the prince of darkness in a bid for the human heart. The whole situation is booby-trapped. Satan already has the upper hand. He took our hearts captive when we fell back in Eden. Some he has snared through abuse, some through seduction, others by means of religion. Oh, how hard it is to rescue the human heart to dislodge people from their chosen means of survival without toppling them into resignation, despair, or defensiveness. Jesus won't take the shortcut of a power play. He doesn't force anyone to follow him. He seems rather reluctant to do his miracles. He never overwhelms anyone's will with a fantastic display of his majesty. He woos, he confronts, he delivers, he heals, he shoots straight, and then he uses intrigue. He lives out before them the most compelling view of God, shows them an incredibly attractive holiness while shattering the religious glaze. But still, he lets them walk away if they choose. Now, Satan has an ace up his sleeve. Even if his captives want out of the POW camp, he has a legal claim to them a claim that can only be broken by blood. These prisoners can be ransomed, but only at a terrible price. It appears the evil one doesn't understand Jesus' next move. He sees an opportunity to finish what he started back in the massacre of the innocents. The authorities grab Jesus at night, bring him in under false charges, bribe witnesses, and then get a weary, cynical Roman puppet to execute him because the mob is about to riot. Jesus seems to have run out of options, lost his ability to maneuver. And yet this plays right into his plan, his secret plot to overthrow the rule of the evil one on earth. Apparently, Satan did not know that by sacrificing Jesus, he would pull the one pin that would crumble his entire kingdom fall into the very scheme God the Father had carefully, ever so carefully arranged for, for the undoing of evil. We speak of God's secret wisdom, Paul wrote, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began, 
none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You bet they wouldn't. It ruined everything from a certain point of view. Now, perhaps this is nothing new to you. Perhaps you've seen a bit of this before, but bring it into the present. Do we love Jesus for his cunning? I don't recall a worship song with the word cunning in it. Thou art cunning or cunning, cunning, cunning? Do we interpret his actions in our lives as perhaps part of some cunning plan? That delayed answer to prayer. Is there something brilliant about the timing? Would it help us to rest if we thought so? When he answers our prayers with no, do we see him sparing us some unseen danger? And when it comes to our own imitation of Christ, do we approach our days wondering, how would Jesus have me be snake-like today? Doesn't it sound a little unchristian? I hope that you have been enjoying these excerpts from Beautiful Outlaw. I want so badly to break Jesus out of the religious fog, break him out of the ridiculous and horrifying stereotypes that he's been put in. I want people to know him, to fall in love with him, because when you know Jesus as he really is, you can't help but fall in love with him. You can't help but trust him with your life and then to be able to receive his incredible personality into our life and have it transform us. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen in the world. And now you can be a part of this revolution. We want you to be a part of bringing this Jesus to the world. We have got fantastic resources that go along with this project for you to be able to take this message out into your world. Very simply, we've got a book trailer, like a movie trailer that you can email to your list. We've got free videos, in fact, a whole 18-part series that go with each chapter of the book that small groups can use, and we're offering those for a limited time free online so that you can share those with others. So for more information on all of this, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.